0: Hey there, Direct Current fans. Hope you're all staying safe and healthy out there. I'm currently recording this from my home studio, aka a coat closet that my cat is frantically trying to get into. I'm sure many of you are stuck at home as we weather this pandemic, so we've got a new episode for you to listen to, one that doesn't have anything to do with COVID-19. Except, in a way, it kind of does. In our last episode, we talked about how our national labs are responding to the COVID-19 crisis, bringing scientific expertise and powerful research tools to the struggle to protect human life. That's what the national labs do. They try to solve problems, whether it's in particle physics or energy storage or a worldwide health emergency. My guests in this episode are working on a problem that, like the coronavirus, has human health impacts on a global scale. And, like the coronavirus, it's a problem that, at its core, is about our changing planet. It's not a disease. This problem involves something that's essential to life on Earth, and yet many of us take it for granted. I'm talking about water. And, more specifically, how it moves from place to place. Where does our water come from? Where does it go? And what happens after changes in the water cycle lead to disaster? This interview was recorded at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, 2020 annual meeting earlier this year. So, if it sounds weird to hear us talking at a gathering of thousands of people, yeah, it's a little strange for me, too. Anyway, we'll have another live episode from that conference coming shortly. Hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you soon. It's science for the people. This
1: is Direct Current.
0: Okay. Hi, everyone. This is Direct Current, an energy.gov podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dozier, with the U.S. Department of Energy. We're here at AAAS in Seattle, live in the SciMic studio, brought to you by This Study Shows. My guests today are Michelle Newcomer and Ruby Lung. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having us. Yes. Yes, thank you.
0: I'd like to start by having you each introduce yourselves. Tell us where you work and a little bit about your research. Ruby, we'll start with you.
2: Okay. My name is Ruby Long. I'm a Patel Fellow at the Pacific Northwest National Lab in Richland, Washington, which is not too far away from here. I'm also the Chief Scientist for the U.S. Department of Energy's Energy Exascale Earth System Model. My name is Michelle Newcomer, and I am a research scientist
1: at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And my research focuses on topics in hydrology, extreme event-driven disturbances such as fires, and how those type of events impact our water in our environment. All right, so we're here today
0: to talk about the future of water and wildfire. Now, to do that, I think we really need to start with water We're in Seattle, a city that's surrounded by water. Uh, We're at a scientific conference. I feel like everywhere I go, I see people holding reusable water bottles. We're constantly being told to drink more water. But we don't just drink water, right? We use it for many other things. So what are some of the other ways that we actually use water?
2: Yeah, indeed. Water is used for many different purposes. So besides drinking, there are also many other domestic uses. We are all familiar with uses like using water to water our lawn. And we also know that water is used for recreation and also transportation. But they only made up about maybe like 5% of the water use globally. So the biggest part of water use in the world is actually Agricultural use. So that accounts for about 85% of the water consumption worldwide. But besides agricultural use, water is also actually used for energy production as well. Uh, So hydropower generation uses water, and that's another about 5% of the water consumption globally. But we know that actually even thermoelectric power generation can also require water for cooling. During a drought year when you don't have enough water to withdraw from the river, that can also cause problems for thermoelectric power generation.
0: Michelle, what are some of the other ways that water plays a role on the local scale?
2: So water is
1: incredibly important in the environment, both as an economic driver as well as an environmental driver. As Ruby mentioned, agriculture. We store our water in groundwater. We pump that water for agricultural purposes. We also store water in reservoirs, that's an important energy storage facility. We use this water, for example, for dilution of contaminants. Uh, we rely on our rivers as important features in the landscape that dilute contamination. So we often hear that. dilution is the solution to pollution. Um, And when we have droughts, for example, that really challenges our ability to rely on water for that type of service. Water also provides other environmental services, such as providing habitat for our migratory salmon. It provides our drinking water. So we rely on water for a variety of other services in addition to agriculture.
0: I think we all learned about the water cycle in elementary school you know it rains the water goes into the streams rivers goes to the ocean evaporates back up into the clouds and it's a you know very simple maybe three four step process it's a little more complicated than that isn't it Um, tell me a little bit about your work in terms of like how we understand the water cycle and how it moves through the environment
2: Yeah, indeed, because water is so integral to the human society and also to ecosystems. We all learn about the water cycle, even in middle school. And we know that on the earth, most of the water is stored in the oceans. But the water that we can actually use for consumption is mostly coming from water over land. So that's in the form of groundwater, water in the stream and also in the lakes, but also soil moisture. So these are like big storages of water But what's important to understand is not only the storages, but also what goes in and out of the storages, and we call them the fluxes, right? So some of the fluxes are, for example, precipitation. Precipitation can enter into the ocean or into the land, and that increases the storage. But also what comes out of the land or the ocean, these are what we call evaporation and transpiration. We also care a lot about runoff, which is the flux that connects between the the land and the ocean. So as a matter of fact, the most difficult part that we need to learn about is the flux. Because of our not complete understanding of the fluxes, there are lots of uncertainties in how we can model water cycle.
0: So yeah, in your work, so you're working to build computer models that, that take into account all of these fluxes, different storage mm-hmm. things. Tell me a little bit about how you go about doing that. And so you, you want to understand completely this whole picture of the water cycle and other environmental processes, right? Yeah, Yeah,
2: so in these So when we model the water cycle, we start by understanding the physical processes that govern the storages and also the fluxes. And so then we turn them into equations. And after we have the equations, then we try to solve the equations by putting them over a mesh that cover the earth. So not only that we have a mesh that cover the earth, but also we have vertical columns for the atmosphere, vertical column for the ocean, and vertical column for the land. And so then we try to solve these equations. So we turn the equations into computer codes. And in fact, most of our models, we have like over a million lines of code. Wow. And then we solve these equations on big supercomputers. Mm. So this is generally how we model the water cycle. But one really important important thing that we also add to our model is that now our water cycle is no longer just a natural water cycle mm. because human activities have been really affecting the water cycle. So about two-thirds of the rivers around the world are regulated by dams. And if we look at the U.S. alone, less than 10% of the rivers are running free to the ocean. So they are all kind of regulated and I mentioned about the important use of water for agriculture. Since the beginning of the 20th century, irrigated area has expanded by over five times. So now we need a lot more water to irrigate the crops. And so we get the water from surface water, but we also get the water from groundwater as well. So pumping the groundwater really affects the groundwater level. So all of these human activities have been affecting the amount as well as the timing of the water cycle right mm-hmm. let's talk
0: a little bit about some of the impacts mm-hmm. that that can have when we as humans change mm-hmm. the water cycle and affect it and other factors also contribute to changes so mm-hmm. that I think brings us to the other topic that we're discussing here today mm-hmm. which is wildfire so Michelle can you talk a little bit about what you've mm-hmm. seen in northern California especially through your work with the wildfires and their links to the water cycle
1: Sure. So a lot of the work that I've done related to wildfires is in Sonoma County where they have experienced some of the most devastating wildfires, both in terms of economic losses and in lives lost. During 2017, those wildfires, they appeared overnight and they spread very rapidly. And one of the challenges that emerged after these wildfires was how do we now assess the environmental impacts? This includes water as an environmental impact. So some of those impacts are also related to water quality. You can imagine that when you have a burned landscape, you have ash, you have trees that are burned, you have houses that are burned. So that introduces both natural organics into the waterways, new types of nutrients, as well as metals and contaminants that are entering not only the rivers, but one of the unrecognized portions of this landscape in terms of changes in water and water quality is the groundwater. So after a fire, you can have major impacts both to your infiltration of water going into the ground, as well as water going into the rivers. And that's both the quantity of that water and the quality of that water. And so what I do in my research, my team is leading research in building a team framework to go out into the field and to be ready to go after these type of disturbances to sample the water. So we have a team and within days of those fires we were out there, we mobilized very quickly to take a watershed approach to our sampling. So the watershed is really this unique defined boundary where water is within this one unit of the landscape. And when rain falls on that landscape, you can track a particle of water as it goes into the soil, mixes with that ash, it goes through reactions, and then eventually makes its way to the stream and to the groundwater system. So our team is really taking this very broad, long timescale watershed approach to understand the changes in the water quality, the changes in the quantity of the water, both in the surface and the groundwater, and using novel techniques for, example, looking at microbes as indicators of these type of changes. So we're really excited about the trajectory of this type of research
0: what's it been like going out and doing this kind of rapid response water quality sampling in communities that have been ravaged by these wildfires?
1: It's often very difficult. First, logistically you can imagine just the nightmare that people are experiencing, the people who live there. And so trying to navigate a team really requires a lot of coordination with local agencies. So we we did that. We coordinated with local agencies. We were able to access sites to start to perform the sampling and this includes water sampling and ash sampling but i think it's really impactful when you actually go to these locations and and you can see how much your research not only impacts the science, but impacts people who have now just experienced this type of disaster. And so our team really took that in mind, being very sensitive to the nature of this, that we wanted to explore the science, but also provide a service in terms of research for a specific issue they were dealing with.
0: When you're going out there, so what are some of the sites that you pick to sample as you're trying to assess the impact of these wildfires on water quality?
1: We usually pick sites that are close to waterways, so tributaries, creeks, areas that have some sort of burn zone, maybe near the top of the watershed or at some location within the watershed. We also choose sites that are burned directly where we can sample the ash, because the ash, that's your source of contamination. And so when that ash then either leaches into the ground or runs off into the river, that's the source where you know, okay, this is the initial metals, for example, that are being introduced to the system. So we do go across the entire watershed as a team. And so we are out there sampling both the, the ash and the water.
0: So you're, you're looking for then hidden impacts of these wildfires that may not be immediately apparent. Obviously, we see the news footage of, you know, burned houses and homes and trees, but there's then potentially invisible impacts in the form of groundwater. Now, Ruby, we were talking earlier, and, and there's also impacts beyond the immediate area of the fire, correct? Mm-hmm. And is that something that you're able to sort of follow with your modeling simulations?
2: Yeah, indeed. But before talking about the uh, other types of impacts of wildfires, it might be important to know like what actually caused wildfires and also sure. how they might change in the future. right? Because I think many of us kind of get the anecdotal information that seems like wildfires have been increasing. right? Mm-hmm. So we've been seeing more wildfires in California and recently we have also seen a big wildfire in Australia. So it's important to understand what conditions actually are favorable for wildfires. So we know that basically hot and dry conditions are very favorable for wildfires. And in California, hot and dry conditions are usually coming from where you have a high pressure system sitting over land. And then you get these northeasterly flows coming from inland, blowing over to California. And because the winds are coming from inland, so they often are kind of dry and hotter compared to when you have flows that are actually coming from over the ocean where they are like moister and cooler. So under this kind of condition, you actually get wildfires. And we know that based on data, over the last 30 years, the frequency for this kind of hot and dry conditions are becoming more favorable and increasing over time.
0: More favorable for fires. Yes,
2: yes. Are uh, favorable for wildfires. Yeah, yeah. And and also when we project into the future of what might happen, we find that over California, a, a very interesting thing that happened in the future under warming is that the timing and the amount of precipitation can change. So what we found in California, for example, is that there is a sharpened seasonal cycle. So we know that California has a Mediterranean type of climate, so we get most of our precipitation in the winter, a little bit in the fall, and a little bit in spring. But under global warming, we find that the wintertime precipitation will be amplified, but the precipitation over spring and fall will actually decrease in the future. And so this sharpen the seasonal cycle of precipitation and potentially can extend the length of the wildfire season in the summer into spring and also into the fall season. Right. So it's really important to understand that wildfires can change. And then as a result of that, we can also see other impacts of wildfires. For example, wildfires produce these really small, tiny particles mm. and they have the size of about maybe like 2.5 micron which is at least 10 times smaller than the diameter of your hair. And these particles can be picked up by the winds and they can be blown downwind thousands of kilometers away from the wildfire and so they can affect human health, air quality and also visibility. So besides the air quality and the human health impacts, we know that wildfires can also change the vegetation cover so by changing the vegetation cover, you can also change how much of the sunlight is reflected by the land surface and how the land surface exchange the fluxes of energy and water with the atmosphere. And so that can also provide kind of like a long-term impact of the climate.
0: Right. I want to sort of circle back then to the value of this research and really what the focus is and, and why... It matters to people. So, Michelle, you you were alluding to it earlier of what you can learn from studying water quality after a fire. What are you hoping that this can provide to people who are impacted by these sorts of natural disasters?
1: What I'm hoping this provides is first a methodology for how we approach research after natural disasters. I think it's really important that we develop better research and protocols for these type of events. Just to give you an example, after wildfires, there are no protocols for what to do in terms of water. Uh, There are a variety of agencies that often come in. They have different techniques, different ways of sampling, different ideas for what's important to sample. So there are no methods for us to work together. And I think that's a really important first step is, is developing these type of protocols. And I think my team and I, were really at the forefront of that. I think it's also important in terms of groundwater, thinking about, since groundwater is such an important feature for California, we rely on groundwater during drought years, we rely on it for agriculture, that we recognize the importance of groundwater for maintaining this type of water security, and that in the future, our research can help to push those type of methods and analyses forward. Right. And
0: then also at that local level, I mean, you're you're talking about resilience here as well. Right.
1: It's it's definitely resilience. And we think about how we can be resilient to wildfires. It's managing our water infrastructure and making these pre-investments to disturbances. So we're ready when a wildfire or other natural disaster hits.
0: Right. And decision making, that's mm-hmm. another focus. Uh, I know you have a, a session coming up, Ruby, mm-hmm. talking about specifically water and making decisions about how we use it. So with your research, how does that help us kind of better make decisions that protect us from threats, you know, set us up for being more resilient in the wake of disasters, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, so computer models are really important in this regard. We use computer models to help us better understand the water cycle processes, but more importantly, computer models are also used to help us simulate and predict the future. So with computer models, we can look at, for example, the impacts of human activities on the water cycle, but also projecting over longer term as well as predicting in the shorter term how much water is available, as well as looking into extreme events. So what is really important is that extreme events, they have like outsized impacts on the society. So, for example, extreme events such as like tropical cyclones or severe storms, they can cause flooding on the ground. But also drought can change in the future because of the warmer temperature that cause more evaporation from the land surface. So being able to predict the water available on the ground for consumption and withdrawal, as well as predicting how extreme water cycle processes might change in the future, is really important to help us better prepare, as well as managing the resources that we have.
0: Right, right. And we've talked a little bit about some of the ways that the conditions around wildfire can then create sort of a feedback loop, right, in terms of then producing potentially more wildfires. So tell me a little bit about the feedback loop that can happen there and the ways that it's you know, important to both have the modeling and also be collecting the data on the ground.
1: One of the most surprising findings that came out last year from our colleagues at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, Faji Mina and Erica Cirilla-Woodburn, they looked at how wildfire impacts groundwater storage. And I think one of the most interesting things from that is that wildfire can have sometimes surprising impacts in terms of increasing groundwater storage. And so while that was a modeling study, that's exactly where I think data is needed. We need data to look at these type of results to really analyze. What are these drivers of these type of changes? And data modeling approaches are absolutely necessary for this type of work. So even with water quality, for example, it's the same approach. We have models that simulate water quality, but we have to verify and validate with real data sets and a scientific interpretation of those data sets. We can't just rely on, you know, data being presented to the public and say, there, you know, there you go. We have to have actually a very rigorous back and forth between the models and data for this type of interpretation.
0: And what's the value been then of being positioned at national labs, at Pacific Northwest National Lab and Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, in terms of the resources you have available and the amount of other expertise within arm's reach?
2: Yeah, I think we are quite fortunate to be working for the Department of Energy. There are lots of uh, facilities and resources that we can use. For example, when I talk about modeling, we really need to have very big computers. So supercomputers are important for helping us to really better resolve the processes that we have and the Department of Energy is leading the uh, initiative to develop the exascale computers for the future. So that's very important. But at the same time, I can agree with Michelle Moore in terms of the needs for data. We really need to go out to collect data and Department of Energy has a lot of different programs that help us to go to the field. We have like research aircraft, we have laboratory facilities. So uh, these data are very important for us to better understand the processes that we are trying to model but also we can use the data to help us evaluate how well our models are actually capturing the important processes that we are trying to model. So we are constantly using these data to help us improve the model. So the type of data that we need are actually many different kinds. Mm. So besides data over the land surface that Michelle talked about, there are also other types of data for example collecting information about the clouds. We have research aircraft that we can fly through the clouds and collect information about these tiny little cloud droplets and cloud ice that actually produce the precipitation. We also have instruments where we can measure the aerosols, the tiny little particles in the atmosphere that influence how much precipitation is produced by the clouds. So I think these are great facilities that we use a lot, combining model and observations.
0: Yeah, there's a a feedback loop then there as well Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. of Collecting the data, improving the models, improving the questions you're going to ask.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, a feedback in model data yeah. integration, mm-hmm. uh, but it also feeds into how we how we understand the water cycle. Mm-hmm. That groundwater impacts the ability of vegetation to survive during droughts, and then droughts then change the groundwater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that feedback right there is very direct. Mm-hmm. The interdisciplinary nature of that is incredibly important and we would not be able to tackle these problems without having this lab type environment where we have researchers from ecology from hydrogeology biogeochemistry all coming together to try and tackle these large problems that individuals can't tackle alone right
0: well thank you for joining me appreciate it very much
2: all right thank you yes thank you
0: (laughs) That's it for this episode of Direct Current. Thank you to my guests, Ruby Lung and Michelle Newcomer. Thanks as well to AAAS for hosting us in the SciMike studio brought to you by The Study Shows. You can find Direct Current at energy.gov podcast, on Twitter at energy or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Matt Dozier with the U.S. Department of Energy. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you.